This is about humanity. This is about us together exploring, seeing wondrous things, and bringing back that inspiration, that knowledge to the entire world. We are at the epicenter of modern scientific exploration when it comes to anything to do with the Earth or above. I cannot think of a single major Earth science, planetary science, or astrophysics result that we have not been somewhat involved in. Welcome back to Small Steps, Giant Leaps. Today on our NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast, we're going to discuss the positive impact NASA has had on literally billions of lives and take a look ahead at what's to come in this new decade. I'm Dina Nunley. Our guest is Michelle Thaller, a science communication liaison at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She's a frequent on-camera contributor to popular science programs and has written numerous articles for science magazines. Michelle, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, thank you. What's your role with NASA? Well, I began at NASA uh, as a research scientist. I had just gotten my doctorate in astrophysics and I was working out at, uh, at GPL actually, on the, uh, the new infrared telescope at the time, the Spitzer Space Telescope. And while I was there, I got very interested in how to do science communication well. You know, everything from uh, dealing with students to dealing with the policy of science communication and the technology of that. So what I am now is kind of a wonderful role. I actually sort of form a bridge between the Office of Communication at Goddard Space Flight Center and their science directorate, which as far as we know is the largest collection of scientists in the world. There's so many amazing things coming out. So it's my job to help bridge the communication aspect of that. And so this is the thing about having a background in formal science is that um, you know someone will send me a scientific paper and I can read this and figure out you know what the, what's the best way to communicate this to the public. So having that background just makes it all that more fun to really dig into the details and figure out not how to communicate just effectively but also very very accurately. You know, people often complain that there's always a price to be paid in terms of the accuracy if you want to talk to the public. And if you're very careful about it, I don't think that really has to be true. I think you can be very sensitive and deliberate about how you explain something in the most correct way. And then other people can understand it, even though they don't have maybe the same science background that you have. Well, the whole point of communication is your audience, who you're speaking to. And as a scientist, if you're speaking in language that they don't understand, or if you're using jargon, or even if you're just you know assuming that they know what a comet is versus an asteroid or what a galaxy is, uh, you know, I mean, you failed at communication. If your intent was to communicate your results, communicate the excitement and the inspiration of NASA science, then that has to begin with who you're speaking to. I often do uh, scientific communication trainings uh, for our uh, our technical people, and I do begin the class with, you know, you know, what is your intention? If your intention is to communicate, then you know, unfortunately, most of you are not actually doing that. <laughs> <laughs> How does that come across? Do they accept that? Well, it's a little bit shocking, you know. I mean, for scientists, the the thing that fascinates us is our our data, the observations that we make, and um, specifically, a lot of times, even the error in the data. You know, what we don't know about what's right. You know, these tiny little incremental steps that are driving the discoveries forward. But when you're talking to a public audience, you know, they they, they really have no idea what you're talking about. They really don't have much of an idea about how science is even accomplished this way. And so it is a very, you know, people talk about uh, your code changing, code switching, you know, really changing your entire way that you communicate, not just your vocabulary, but the strategy, the goals of the communication change depending on your audience too. Let's talk about your role as a scientist. 
so do you get to search for the possibility of life in the outer reaches of the solar system? Absolutely. I mean, as far as uh, dealing with some of the communication aspects of this, and you know, this is something that has been just incredible. You know, I mean, I uh, I arrived at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, not long after the Cassini spacecraft launched. And of course, that uh, spacecraft explored Saturn and the moons of Saturn, where we found some of the most likely environments for life in our solar system. And then uh, I also used to watch the uh, the uh, the current rover on Mars, the Curiosity rover. I, I used to watch that being built on my lunch hour. They, they would have windows looking into the, the clean laboratory it was being built. And I'd see this rover taking shape and thinking, you know, that'll be rolling around on another planet soon. So working with those communication teams has been some of the most exciting moments of my entire life. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Could you give us a preview of science and space exploration in the 2020s? What's on or perhaps over the horizon? Well, there are some particularly exciting things. So we we just talked about the Cassini mission, which uh, ended its mission a couple of years ago. And one of the things that Cassini found, which was just kind of mind-blowing, is that there's a very large moon of Saturn called Titan. And in fact, Titan is is very nearly the size of the planet Mars. I mean, this is a, a big world, and it has an atmosphere that is actually thicker than the Earth's atmosphere. And in fact, the air pressure is a little bit more than the air pressure uh, at Earth here at, at sea level. And we found an environment there that included lakes, you know, liquid lakes and rivers and rain made not out of water, but out of methane, which is a, an organic molecule, very interesting, made of carbon, carbon-based molecule. And there's a lot of evidence from the measurements of Cassini that underneath this amazing landscape made of, 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 of methane, there's quite a lot of warm liquid water as well. So this was a place we thought might have a chance at being a habitable environment. And so we've just gotten approval to uh, begin to build the Dragonfly mission. And this is something that is going to be uh, launched, you know, hopefully in the, in the mid-2020s. And uh, this is actually going to send a, a large octocopter. So when you think of an octocopter, people like, you use them like for drones and photography. You might be thinking of something kind of small, maybe the size of a microwave oven. But Dragonfly is closer to the size of a small car, actually. And so, um, you know, one of the, uh, as, a, as a communication scientist, the, the outreach capabilities of saying that we are optocoptering through the atmosphere of this moon of Saturn, looking for life-friendly environments, that's going to be huge. That's going to be so much fun. And, uh, and then, of course, we're also getting ready to launch our next Mars rover, uh, you know, currently titled Perseverance. It used to be called Mars 2020, but has been renamed Perseverance uh, from a wonderful essay that a young man named Alex sent in. And uh, so, so that will be also doing experiments that will help pave the way for human exploration of Mars as well. And I could go on. <laughs> there's, there's so much exciting stuff coming up. <laughs> I would love for you to go on. Let's oh, talk about okay. some more. What are some other things that really get you excited when you think wow. about this decade that we've just started? Well, specifically, you mentioned the search for life. And, you know, the, there are a lot of things that, that don't involve that, like looking at, you know, very distant black holes or things like that. But, but you know, sort of constraining myself to the search for life. Um, one thing that's changed so much over the course of my career as a scientist is the existence and the measurements of exoplanets, planets around other stars. And I actually did some of my undergraduate uh, research work with one of the people that found uh, some of the first planets around other stars, Dr. David Latham at Harvard. And um, so we went from not knowing about any, we assumed they were there, but we didn't have any evidence of them when I was in college. 
and uh, and now we've uh, we've just gone over 4000 confirmed exoplanets and we are following up on another approximately 4000 measurements right now in the next year alone we have an, uh, a newly launched satellite called TESS the, the terrestrial exoplanet survey satellite and TESS should find on the order of 1000 planets in the next year mm. and so you know wow. just think about that I mean, it used to be none and now it's all of a sudden you know, a huge sample of planets around other stars. The big story, though, is, you know, could these planets support life or not? And there's so much we don't understand. And this is where you see all of all of NASA coming together. This is one of the most amazing things at working at NASA, which leads science in so many aspects of Earth science, planetary science, astrophysics. So right now, our Earth science climate experts are actually using very amazing computer models to simulate what the atmospheres would be like, what the, what the conditions would be like on some of these planets. We've never observed these planets. It's very rare to observe them directly. We mainly see them transit in front of their stars, meaning they, they cross the star and, and form a tiny little solar eclipse. So they block out a little bit of light and you can actually detect the planet that way. But what's happening now, uh, especially with the next generation of telescopes, the, the James Webb Space Telescope that we hope to launch sometime next year, um, James Webb will have the power to actually pick out the chemical signals of what's in the atmosphere. So we will look at a planet around another star, hundreds and maybe thousands of light years away, and we'll be able to say that planet has oxygen and water vapor. And there, there may even be a possibility of looking for things like like chlorophyll, like like plant life actually altering the light, absorbing light. So I mean, can you can you imagine in, in you know in ten years from now we may know of many planets where we wonder. We, we see water vapor, we see carbon dioxide, we see oxygen, we see methane. Maybe there'll even be one that has has more clear signals of life than that. And although we won't be able to, to see that life close up, you'll be able to point in the sky <laughs> and say that star has a planet that we heavily suspect has life on it. When you look toward future discovery, what are you most eagerly anticipating or imagining? Well, so these were some of the discoveries involving the Hubble Space Telescope and other NASA missions. They, the farther afield stuff has really fascinated me lately. And uh, you know, one of the things that's uh, been part of my work as an astrophysicist is the way stars live and die and, and what happens when a star dies. And we have known for a long time, actually, that the, uh, the heavier elements in the universe really have to be formed by a star dying. So even you know, the, the molecules that make up your body, you have atoms of, of carbon and oxygen. Uh, you have things like you know, phosphorus and calcium. And the reason your blood is red is because of a little bit of iron that's actually uh, in, in the, the molecules of your blood. All of those elements are only formed by the universe. It's just one way the universe makes these. They're only formed by dying stars. And so, you know, in, incredibly, we've sort of known up to iron very well. We've, we've observed stars dying and putting off a lot of these elements. But some of the heavier things, like, uh, for example, gold and silver and platinum, you know, and heavier things, even like uranium, we had never observed much in the way of the production of these elements. And what happened about two years ago is that NASA, working in conjunction with a project called LIGO, the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory that's run by the National Science Foundation, um, LIGO is a series of observatories built here on the surface of the Earth. And they are able to detect tiny little shifts in uh, really literally the fabric of space and time called gravitational waves, waves of gravity itself coming through the planet. 
And the the sensitivity is unbelievable to me. I mean, think about what we're going to be able to accomplish. The these waves, the wavelength was ten thousand times smaller than a single proton of an atom. And these instruments could detect these waves coming all across the Earth as this wave moved through the Earth. And then, in collaboration with NASA, LIGO said, you know, somewhere over here in this part of the sky, something really big has happened. And the Hubble Space Telescope, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, several of our observatories turned to this area of the sky and saw this distant, huge explosion. Uh, in this case, it was two dead stars that we call neutron stars colliding together. And in that one collision, we saw the production of, for example, 10,000 times the mass of the Earth produced in gold. Just think about that. And you're talking about these telescopes, and you've mentioned James Webb Space Telescope. How significant do you think James Webb Space Telescope is going to be? Well, here again, we, you talk about seeing things very, very distant. And, and the, the, the thing that's so exciting to astronomers about that is that means you're seeing things in the past. Because as, as fast as light travels, it does have a, a finite speed. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. And with, with these things that, you know, if you can look very, very far away, then that light took a long time to get to you. And the thing that excites me about the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, I mean, it's going to look at so many things, like we mentioned exoplanets, but it's powerful enough to see so far away that you are looking at the universe as it was, say, a couple hundred million years after the Big Bang. And um, this is a time that's extremely mysterious to us. It's very, very difficult to make observations back to that time. And um, we know that something spectacular happened <laughs> because, as we mentioned, most of the, the the larger atoms, the things that make us up, you know, all of our uh, all of our uh, you know the makeup of the, the molecules and the building blocks of life, um, most of that was produced in the first couple hundred million years of the universe. And so, you know, I I often talk about the party at the beginning of the universe. There must have been this gargantuan epic of star formation and spectacular star destruction as these stars blew up. And uh, that's something that, you know, I, I just cannot wait to see the clues that the James Webb Space Telescope gives us. So how do you explain what it means to look back in time? Well, that's it, it, in some ways, it's just so easy because we were saying, you know, it takes light time to travel. So, you know, the sun is, you know, on average about 93 million miles away from us. And traveling at 186,000 miles per second, uh, light takes about eight minutes. And so when you look at the, the sun in the sky, when you, when you feel the heat of the sun on your face, you know, when you close your eyes and look up at the sun, uh, that, uh, that light left the sun about eight minutes ago. So there's, there's no way for us to see the sun as it is right at this instant. We, we have to see it eight minutes ago because the light took that long to travel. And then, uh, of course, as we have uh, all of our probes out in space, you know, the the Curiosity rover on Mars, uh, Mars is a planet going around the sun itself. So the distance varies. You know, sometimes Mars is on the other side of the sun from us. Sometimes it's closer to us. But that could be anywhere from you know, 10 minutes to 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, if, the, if something were to happen to the rover, you know, the first we would know about it. This is, this is very nerve wracking during landings, for example, is, uh, you know, the, uh, the radio or microwave signals come out from the rover and then they take you know, anywhere from 15 minutes to you know, 20 minutes to get to us. And when you're exploring the outer solar system, uh, those signals may take hours. And so you just keep that going. You know, the, the nearest star to us is four light years away. Light take, takes four years to travel. 
And uh, that unit, one light year, is about six trillion miles. So, so I mean, that's why we don't use miles. <laughs> We'd be writing zeros down all day. And you know, the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to see things as they were. It'll be able to look so far away that we'll be looking at the universe when it was only a couple hundred million years old. The light has taken that long to get to us. As a NASA scientist, what do you consider to be the most remarkable achievements or discoveries where NASA has made a difference? You know, it's honestly difficult to think of a, um, you know, a, a hugely significant discovery that we have not at least played some part in. Um, I mean, this is this is the thing that I think people have to really consider working for NASA. You know, whether it was something very much based at home, like the discovery of the ozone hole, the depletion of ozone that was discovered, you know, back in the late 1980s. You know, that's something that you know universities were involved, but NASA and our satellite observation campaign had a huge part in. You know, whether it's looking for, you know, the, the very first pictures we took close up of Jupiter or Saturn sending the Voyagers out there. Or, you know, today we have, uh, you know, a spacecraft orbiting very close to the sun, the Parker Solar Probe. All of these things, you know, and all of the major programs that NASA does are partnerships, of course. You know, the Hubble Space Telescope, we partner with universities, with the European Space Agency, Canada, Japan, you know, uh, obviously Russia, you know, with, with all, of, all of our human exploration. But I cannot think of a single major earth science, planetary science, or astrophysics result that we have not been somewhat involved in. You know, even the first picture ever of a giant black hole where you could actually see the, the, the dark bit in the middle where light was actually being sucked into the black hole. That's why it was dark. Incredible. You know, that was done by a consortium of universities and uh, observatories all around the world. But yes, our scientists had a part in that as well. So, you know, we are at the epicenter of modern scientific exploration when it comes to anything to do with the earth or above. You gave us an example or two there. Are there others that come to mind that you're like, wow, this is a place where NASA really made a difference and this is one of my favorite stories to recount to other people? <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, I, I work with all aspects of NASA science and, um, you know, a lot of times I'll be in a seminar and I will just sort of be surrounded by scientists. Everybody is very, you know, very calm, very sedate. And, and someone is presenting data up there. And all of a sudden, I just, I'm, I'm doing it now. My, my, my jaw drops. I'm, I'm, I'm like, what? You know, what did this person just say? You know, our, um, our Earth science teams have gotten better. Our oceanography teams have gotten so good at predicting the cycle of the El Nino current, you know, when the oceans uh, will be warm or, or cooler off the, uh, the coast of the Americas. And uh, this has a tremendous effect on, on, on rain patterns in South America. And they, they now are able to predict things very well as much as seven years out. And so they work with farmers, for example, in Brazil, to plant different crops that will be either more drought resistant or more flood resistant, depending on the rain predicted. And uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll say this at, at a, a bullet point in a PowerPoint chart. We believe this may have saved tens of thousands of people. And I'm just like, okay, you know, that, that's a bullet point. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we, we mentioned the detection of the ozone hole. And of course, it had, had nothing been done about that. We believe we would have largely depleted our ozone by the year 2060. And that would have been horrible. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to, to grow many crops. Livestock couldn't be outside. People couldn't be outside. The oceans probably would have had an effect. So, you know, the, um, the, the tremendous asset NASA has been to understanding our local environment, I think a lot of people don't understand but, but then when you think about, you know, things that have come up, I mean, only in the last, say, 10 years 
have we discovered that the entire universe, let's go from local scales to the largest scales we know of, the entire universe is not only expanding, but it's actually accelerating. It's actually getting faster all the time. And this was a complete surprise. And there were, there were three different groups of people that shared the Nobel Prize, uh, and two of those at least you know, largely used NASA data, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope data. So our entire view of the universe as a whole thing changed 10 years ago. We cannot explain why the universe is accelerating faster and faster. It implies that there's more energy being dumped into it all the time. The Big Bang never stopped. And the term that we have for this is called dark energy. And I've just now told you as much as we know <laughs> about dark energy. The, the term simply means we don't know where this energy is coming from. So, you know, I mean, whether it's finding lifelike environments, I mean, I I show people pictures that came out of the Cassini mission, pictures of the rings of Saturn or some of the smaller moons or the, the lakes on Titan full of liquid methane. And I have to really ask people to stop for a moment. You know, forget you're in a scientific lecture. I'm just going to pause for a moment. I want you to look at this image and remember that this is not an artist's conception. This is not a painting. This is not a computer graphic. This is what our spaceship saw when it was swinging around the giant planet Saturn, you know, coming close to the rings or, or close to, to Titan. And I, I think that we're so used to spectacular special effects and so many things can be generated, of course. It just it bears, it, it, tell people to stop for a second. You know, right now, we have one of the most chemically sensitive laboratories ever built, the size of a small car rolling around on another planet. And our scientists are meeting in teams all over the world, trying to figure out what the plans are for today and what we're going to discover. Or, you know, we're, we're getting ready to explore, you know, uh, you know, new asteroids. And, you know, we're getting ready to take a sample of an asteroid, which will be a, it, it'll be as if somebody put a bit of the solar system from, from 4 billion years ago in a deep freezer and nothing changed it for 4 billion years. And our, our scientists are going to have in their hands a piece of the unchanged solar system from 4 billion years ago. You know, that's going to be happening in the summer when the OSIRIS-REx mission samples the, the asteroid Bennu and then brings it back to the laboratories here at NASA. So, you know, stop for a minute. Think about the, 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 the millions and perhaps billions of people whose lives we have affected in a wonderful way that we've saved. Think of the new environments in the solar system we're exploring. And think about the fact that, you know, the understanding of where the gold in your wedding ring came from, we didn't even know that till two years ago, to the very farthest scales imaginable, the universe as a whole. That's the organization you're part of. And, um, you know, I am so exceedingly proud to work for NASA. Of course, my day, like everyone else's, is about planning and budgets and, and meetings and, you know, all of the necessary red tape to keep this incredible organization going. But I, I, I swear, I learned, I learned something incredible nearly almost every day. And this is a message you like to convey when you speak with program and project managers and technical workers across NASA. Absolutely. And one of the things where I think, speaking on behalf of the scientists of NASA, um, I think that we're in some ways letting people down. Organizations this large always have uh, institutional barriers. You know, I, I do have a really good friend who is one of our senior procurement managers. And I've, I've talked to him about this. You know, there are these amazingly talented financial people working in our procurement department, and they're all, you know, they're all enabling these missions to go forward, to be built, 
to return their data, for the data to be analyzed by scientists. And yet oftentimes we're not putting ourselves as scientists in their office, at their meetings, you know, at their management retreats and saying, do you understand what you did? You know, do you understand that, that all of that funding that you had to track and you had to vet and you had to you prepare all these reports for OMB, whatever, um, you know, we, we found a moon on Saturn with warm liquid oceans and the, uh, the water was flying out through cracks and our, our, we, we, we flew through it and, and we tasted that water and found evidence for organic molecules, uh, perhaps for salt, you know, I mean, for, we, we actually tasted the oceans with our instruments. You made that happen. You know, do you understand that right now what you're working on, getting all the approvals for, is going to be, you know, a mission that one day sails through the atmosphere of, of Venus or, or one day goes out to the farthest asteroid? I mean, there's, there's do you understand your, 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 these, these things that you are doing? I mean, whether you are a security guard at NASA, whether you're working in finance, in legal, you know, I mean, there are so many aspects of our organization that, that I think as scientists, we have to get better at, at getting ourselves in the door to where they are and really make them feel included and inspired because it, it, it seems a little unfair that we sort of we sort of cream the discoveries off the top and say hey this is wonderful that should be part of working at nasa for every single person no matter what their position is anything else that you try and remind nasa workers that they're part of that they're contributing to humanity there's so many parts of this agency that i'm proud of and you know, I mean, I always come back to the people. I, I, I really, this, it, it seems like a cliche. You, you ask people what's the best part of working for NASA and whether it's all of our public podcasts or, you know, our, our management, uh, it's like, oh, yes, the people are the best things. But, you know, I, I really have to tell you something kind of personal. Um, you know, I have a, a family situation right now. I have a husband in the final stages of cancer. And um, I just, thank the stars every day that I work at NASA. When we say that our people are the best people in the world, um, people have brought me meals, you know, people that are like, you know, seriously Nobel Prize winning scientists, you know, are calling up and saying, can I go grocery shopping for you? People have mm. um, given me a chance, you know, to have some, some peace and quiet at home. You know, people have given me some space. Um, people have made sure I'm still included in the meetings and, I, and I, I'm still inspired and, you know, I'll be giving some talk. I was giving a talk about, you know, heliophysics, the physics of the sun the other day. And I realized I wasn't thinking about any of the sadness in my life. I was smiling and I was so excited about what's going on. Um, we create joy and we have created a family. And this is not somebody in PR just saying that. This is somebody right now in a moment of their life telling you and thanking all of you you are a family and you have been a huge support in my life and you will continue to be an inspiration for as long as I live. Michelle, thank you for sharing that with us. Our thoughts are with you as you and your family are walking through this difficult time. Well, it's absolutely true. And I think we, we, we really have to remember just what we do is actually noble. I mean, that, that, word, doesn't, that word doesn't seem to have much resonance in today's world. You know, I, I am very proud that we serve the government under any administration. I'm very proud that politics plays a very small role in what we do, that, you know, this is about humanity. This is about us together exploring, seeing wondrous things and bringing back that inspiration, that knowledge to the entire world. And, you know, if, if that's not a noble thing to do, then I don't know what is. 
Where did your passion for science and astronomy originate? Oh, you know, I always I always tell my audiences I'm not the right person to ask about that because for me, um, you, you you find people like this in life, and I think I think a lot of scientists would understand what I'm talking about. Um, I don't even know where my interest came from. My my mother, uh, who is not a scientist, uh, said that as soon as I could walk, she would find me trying to go outside and look at the stars. And um, she she to this day, you know, in a, in a wonderfully affectionate way. Uh, does not understand what I see in the little lights in the sky. You know, she does not know why they could possibly be interesting. I've tried to explain it to her probably hundreds of times, but no. Um, there's there's a lot of people that if you if you ask yourself what are you genuinely curious about, there there's a tremendous spread in humanity, and that that's a wonderful thing. You know, some people are very interested in history or art, or some people are you know very passionate about being incredible parents or teachers or medical professionals. And for some reason, you know, in, in humanity, you have people that come from different genders or ethnic backgrounds or economic backgrounds. It really doesn't seem to matter that that just, you know, they hit the ground and they want to know what are those lights in the sky? Are there other planets? What is the sun? How does the sun work? And I I just, I can't imagine what it's like. That's me. I mean, I, I've been asking those questions since I understood what a question was. And I personally found science education uh, very difficult. <laughs> I got very bad grades in uh, in college, especially in physics and mathematics. The um, mm-hmm. the way that it was taught, where a professor would sort of go up to a chalkboard at that time and and derive things, and the chalkboard would be full of equations, and I'd be taking notes about all of this. And somehow I was supposed to open my notebook at the end of the day, back in my dorm room, and understand this. And, and they were you know, this was supposed to leap into my head. Um, that didn't work, but I loved the subject material so much. Honestly, I just kind of suffered through it. And, you know, I, I really hope that uh, physics and math is, is taught differently. I know in some cases it's not. They still teach it that way. But um, for me, it has to be a story. It has to be a narrative. And um, I have to be able to piece something together myself and sort of see how it works together. But then, you know, when I realized that, you know, I mean, yeah, okay, it took me three times to get through differential equations, it took me a couple times to get through quantum mechanics, but I did eventually get a doctorate in physics. <laughs> so, you know, I, I keep telling people that if you love the subject material and the education seems kind of difficult and confusing, that may not mean that this is not the subject for you. It may mean that you just learn in a different way and that you'll bring a very fresh perspective to the field when you when you finally learn this. I, I think quantum mechanics, for example, or, or, or advanced physics is, is much more easily learned when you think of it as learning a foreign language, when you when you do it little by little, you know, practice just a little bit you know until you get good at that, you know, then slowly move on to something a little bit more advanced, immerse yourself in it for a long time. It takes years and maybe decades to become fluent, but it's it's nothing more difficult really than learning another language, and it can be taught that way. So, you know, in 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 my case. You know, I'm one of those people the universe kind of tapped on the shoulder as a baby and said, hey, look up here. And um, culturally, I did not fit very well into science and science education, the formality of it. But I am so glad I stuck with it. It, it, I mean, this this subject has sustained me all my life and it continues to give me so much joy and inspiration. Well, talking with you and hearing your story is absolutely joyful and inspirational for all of us. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's wonderful to be here. And for all of the project managers and other people out there that want to know more about the science, I I know it's it's hard to break down the walls sometimes, but go talk to your local science directorate, 
heck, come talk to me if you're somewhere in the D.C. area or if you want me to do a remote uh, talk. I, I would just love the joy that I feel to be part of everybody's life here at NASA. Any closing thoughts before we go today? Well, you know, I I guess some of the things that uh, are going on right now, of course, is, you know, we, uh, we're all sort of isolated from each other. We're all dealing with this pandemic. Um, one of the things that it's affecting a lot is our, our internship program for this coming summer. And uh, that, of course, will go on. It may be a bit strange this year. But um, every year I see the science interns come into NASA. And all I can say is that they are they are better than I am in every single way I can think of. They are they are better scientists. They are better at the the sort of reality of science, uh, writing grants, networking, uh, figuring out how you need to get yourself known in a, a larger group. They're they're more cagey about how they do things. They understand how the politics works. They're, they're they they have they have much more joy, and they're far more diverse than the cohort of scientists that I remember graduating with. So. You know, I, I see it firsthand that our future is wondrous. And, you know, when these missions come online that we've talked about, you know, all these new exoplanets, the James Webb Space Telescope, our new planetary probes, these young people are going to take this and they are going to show us things we haven't even dreamed of yet. You'll find Michelle's bio, links to topics discussed during our conversation, and a show transcript on our website at apple.nasa.gov podcast. We invite you to take a moment and subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends and colleagues about it. As always, thanks for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps.